0: Please open your Bibles to John 6, John 6, and as you turn there, I'd like to give you an idea of what I intend or hope to cover this morning. Um, So, on Reformation Sundays, what I like to do is take a truth, a truth clarified, honed, stated clearly, you might say rediscovered, from the Bible, a biblical truth uh, that was emphasized in the Reformation Um, it's helpful to use Roman Catholicism or Eastern Orthodoxy as a contrasting background. And so this morning, that's what we'll try to do. We're going to look at the Reformation and the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Perseverance of the saints. You may not have heard that term before. Um, It doesn't matter if you use that phrase. It represents a biblical reality. But the real issue with the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints is actually harmonizing, fitting together, cohesively two other biblical truths you'll see them as the first two points in the outline and and i'm going to spend probably half our time two-thirds of our time trying to show biblically the first two truths are in fact true the first god intends for us his children those who are born of him he intends for us to have true assurance in our salvation that is a biblical truth point number two that we also must persevere in faith to the end if we are to be saved and then the challenge is, how do you, how do you fit those two truths together? How do, you, how do you do that? Now, historically, you do it generally by holding on to one and, and de-emphasizing the other. And in the case of Roman Catholicism, they hold firmly to the truth that you must persevere to the end, such that, in practical sense, there was no assurance of salvation, Maybe maybe conceptually, Rome might grant it to saints or people who had visions, but for the average end user, for the average congregant, they went minute by minute, day by day, because in Rome's teaching, the state of your soul at death and at that alone determines your destiny. And you might be in a state of grace one day, and you might commit a mortal sin, the word mortal, mortis, death, a a grace-killing sin might occur, and you might die in a state of mortal sin and go to hell. And so your current condition on any given day could not guarantee in what state you would die. Um, That's Roman Catholic teaching to this day. Another way of doing that, some churches in America today, of the more Arminian stripe, believe you can lose your salvation. Similar concept. You're holding on to the truth that believers must persevere. They must persevere to the end. And of course, we have to process and make sense of those people. And we know people who have made professions of faith and for a time and for a season appear to genuinely have faith only to fall away, at times renounce their faith, join other faiths. What do we make of them? How do we understand that? This is a challenging topic. We know kids who make professions of faith in Owana and our youth groups who are not living for the Lord now. What do you make of that? And so taking these true truths together, that none of those who are saved will be lost. And God intends for those who are born of him to know, to have assurance in their salvation. I believe that's true. I also believe the Bible teaches truly we must persevere to the end in faith if we are to be saved. How do you fit those together? Well, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, I think rightly fits that together. We want to guard against two errors. You look in a little box, two errors to avoid in harmonizing. I've mentioned one already, to so emphasize perseverance that you deny any meaningful assurance. Um, You can do it in one way, like Rome, simply no one can have assurance, or you can deny it as some churches today, well, you, you can be saved today, but lose your salvation tomorrow. The other error, which honestly, if I had to guess, is more likely the ditch we would be likely to fall into. This seems to be the ditch that much of American Christianity falls into, and it so often happens. The pendulum swings from one extreme to the other. So Rome doesn't offer assurance. We see the assurance taught in the Bible. Then you so emphasize assurance that you deny the need to persevere. This is usually done by loving family members who don't want to contemplate the possibility that a son or a daughter, a grandson or a granddaughter, who, who looked so promising at one point in their life, is now openly denying the faith and they want to believe, no, I think they're... T- After all, once saved, always saved. After all, you can't lose your salvation. And I know they are saved. So even though they're not evidencing that today, I'm confident. This also allows room for all sorts of weak evangelism where people can say they follow Jesus but serve their own gods of money and pleasure. After all, it's by grace, not works. And so what, what, what are we to make of that? So the, the other ditch is to so hold on to assurance I sort of refer to this not as the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, but the sort of once saved, always saved. That there is no concern, there is no, there is no heeding or hearing of the warnings that we must press on. That's why I want to show both of these. I don't know from your background where you're coming from. I know some of you are coming from a Roman Catholic background. You may not be as aware of those passages that speak to assurance. Assurance. And some of you may be coming more from, from the American church background, and it'll be a surprise to hear those passages that absolutely insist we must persevere. And then finally, the third point, we'll attempt to, how do you fit these together? How do we have an assurance that holds on to both truths? That's where I'm hoping to go. There are a lot of passages. Normally, we go verse by verse of the Bible. I'll be reading a lot of texts that are written down, so I'm just going to move. If you want to follow me, you're welcome to. Or you can listen, or you can come back and re-listen later. Anyway, with that said, let's deal with the first proof, the first um, truth that that I believe the Bible teaches. God intends for us to have true assurance in our salvation. Now, given that we've been studying John's gospel, and I'm hoping many of you are familiar with what we've studied, we're going to find most of our proofs in John's gospel. Where I can, that's where I go. So John 6, Jesus is preaching to big multitudes and crowds. And the question is, does Jesus offer... Those who, who would come to faith, any sort of assurance. I believe he does. He does. Jesus, here's your blank, offers assurance to those who believe. Um, John six thirty five to 37. Jesus said to them, this is a big, vast multitude of people who crossed the sea. They ate the, the bread that he fed them, and they crossed the sea the next day. And he just indiscriminately says to the big crowd, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you, you've seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So notice the grammar. Whoever comes to me, press a present tense verb. Right now, whoever comes to me right now, then it shifts to future. The one who comes to me now, I will never cast out. Come to Jesus now, and he says, I am never going to cast you out. That's assurance. Jesus is making this open-ended promise to those who would come to him. Whoever comes to me, I'm never going to cast out. Never going to cast out. Then in verse um, 54, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will, future tense verb, raise him up on the last day. There are people right there in that crowd who had eternal life. And this promise that Jesus will raise them is made to them, okay? Jesus offered it. He offered it indiscriminately in his preaching. Believe now, if you're believing now, I will never cast you away. I will raise you to life. Jesus also emphasizes that he will lose none. He, he, he contemplates the question, can someone who's come to him be lost? And he says emphatically, no. Again, in John 6, 39 to 40, this is the will of him who sent me. I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my father that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. How many is Jesus going to lose? You can, you can just say the easy ones right out. How many? None. None. Okay. Great. Turn to John 10. Turn to John 10. And I'm going to move somewhat quickly on this first point because I, I think most of you know this, but it's, worth, it's still worth, worth demonstrating. This is, this is biblical. Jesus encourages his would-be followers. He encourages his, his new disciples with these truths. I find great comfort in these truths. John 10, 27 to 30. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Jesus says, no one. He's getting snatched out of his hands. Jesus will lose none of his sheep. If you could lose your salvation, you've made Jesus a liar. Then if you turn to 1 John, or you can just follow along as I read this, 1 John explicitly states what I think is implicit in many passages of the Bible, that John is writing in part for the very purpose to give assurance. 1 John 5, 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Does God intend for his children to know they have eternal life? Yes, he does. It's his intention. He wants them to know that. Scripture was written in part so that we might know that. So I hope you see the doctrine of assurance of salvation is plainly taught in Scripture. God wants us to have assurance. He offers it to us. He gives Scripture for it. Jesus encourages us with that reality. And then finally, turn to Romans eight twenty-eight to 39. One of my favorite other passages in the Bible. Let's pick it up in verse 31, in fact. Romans eight thirty-one. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. You get that? Jesus, right now, is interceding for us. And then he asks the question if God's for us, if Jesus is interceding for us, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Point D, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Those who are united to Christ by faith, those who share in his love in this way, you cannot lose your salvation. You cannot fall from this. I'll just, I have very few quotes outside of the Bible just because we have so much to cover, but very quickly Martin Luther writing about this. And of course, he, he's dealing with the peasants who are just constantly being driven by fear fear they're going to lose grace. That's why you have to keep coming back and back and back to to receive the sacraments, to get more grace, because you're sending away the grace you have, and you might die in a state of no grace. Luther wrote this to a, a friend of his who was struggling with assurance. I love this quote. When the devil throws our sins up to us and declares we deserve death and hell, we ought to speak thus. I admit I deserve death and hell. What of it? Does this mean I shall be sentenced to eternal damnation? By no means, for I know one who suffered and made satisfaction in my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Where he is, there I shall be also. John Calvin in his Institutes wrote this, in one word, he only is a true believer who firmly persuaded that God is reconciled and is a kind father to him, hopes everything from his kindness who, trusting to the promises of the divine favor with undoubting confidence, anticipates salvation. None hope so well in the Lord save those who are confidently glory in being heirs of the heavenly kingdom. The goodness of God is not properly comprehended when security does not follow as its fruit. Calvin's saying is the faith that pleases God is a faith that believes it will receive. That's Hebrews 11. The one who believes in God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who seek for him. So one of the truths in the Reformation that Martin Luther, John Calvin, and others taught and proclaimed was to, to the laity, to the, to the commoners, to the peasants, you can have assurance. You can have confidence. God wants you to have assurance. God wants you to have confidence in your salvation if you are his. Um, and and that is biblical and true. So that's our first truth. God intends for us to have true assurance in our salvation. Let's look to point number two. We must persevere in faith to the end if we are to be saved. Now I believe that is equally clearly taught in Scripture. Equally clearly taught in Scripture. Let's begin with Jesus. Jesus taught that saving faith must persevere and be fruitful. Jesus taught this quickly. Matthew 10.22, You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Matthew 24.13, The one who endures to the end will be saved. Mark 13.13, The one who endures to the end will be saved. This is a common statement of Jesus. So the Master himself taught this regularly. Um, additionally, Luke eight thirteen. um, remember the, the parable of the sower and we have the seed that fell on the hard path. That's the unbeliever. We have the seed, the person who makes no profession, the seed that falls in the rocky and the thorny soil. Jesus says this, the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while and in time of testing fall away. So Jesus spoke of a faith, quote-unquote, that was temporary, that died, that withered, that bore no fruit. Jesus warned of this. And most notably and most recently in John 8, right, what did Jesus say to the Jews who had believed in him? This is kind of what sparked this topic in my mind. In John 8, Jesus said to the Jews that had believed in him, John eight thirty one, if you abide in my word, You are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Continue in my teaching. Persevere. That's how you prove your disciple of Jesus. You persevere in his word. So Jesus taught this. Point B. Another thing Jesus taught is that if we deny him, ultimately he will deny us. I say ultimately because we know Simon Peter denied Jesus. It's not as simple as saying you ever deny Jesus, he'll deny you. But if the ultimate resolution of your faith is that you shrink back, you, you deny him, you fall away, you deny the Lord, he insists he'll deny you. L- listen, listen to uh, this truth in Matthew 10, 28 to 33. And, and get the logic. This is in Matthew 10, 22, Jesus says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. And then a few verses later, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus, part of Jesus' motivation for disciples is fearing God who can cast people into hell. Understand, he puts that on the table. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. And he spoke of that in Matthew 7. I will say, depart from me, I never knew you. He denies them. So Jesus says plainly, understand this, putting on the table, fear God who can send you to hell. Whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my Father who is in heaven. We saw that in Luke. 8, 12, 8 through 9, I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the son of man will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And what's striking is, if you turn to 2 Timothy 4, we can just listen along, in what we call the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and, and Titus, there are five trustworthy sayings. Pithy well-worded Christian truths. These are some of the earliest doctrinal statements. It's possible Paul made them up. It's also equally likely, and I tend to think, these are already the early churches putting together truth, putting together doctrine, especially as the New Testament letters hadn't been written. In the first instance, they're taking important truth. And in, in 2 Timothy, we get one of these packaged doctrinal statements, one of these pithy, memorable statements. What, what did the early church think important to remember and encourage each other with. 2 Timothy 2, 11 to 13. This is a trustworthy saying. For if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will reign with him. And oh, look what they grab, what Jesus said in Matthew. They thought that was important. If we deny him, he also will deny us for faithless he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself and we know the early church took that seriously the word martyr means to testify and the concept was one whose profession of faith continued to death they didn't shrink back they did not deny the lord they confessed they were a witness they died and they encouraged each other by saying remember remember if you if you endure you'll reign with him but if you deny him he'll deny you they took that seriously I'm guessing most of us would be very uncomfortable giving that exhortation to one another. Jesus says it plainly. The early church held on to that, internalized that, encouraged each other with it. If we deny him, he will deny us. Point C, we are told to examine ourselves. Um, I think in a zeal that believers might have assurance it's possible to come to a point where we think that anything that might make someone question their salvation is a bad thing. As if the worst thing we could ever do is make a Christian question if they're a Christian to make someone doubt their salvation. And I think there are evil, satanic ways of doing that, but biblically, we're told to do this. We're told to do this. 2 Corinthians thirteen five to 6 Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. You're... God commands you periodically to test yourself to see if you're a Christian. The Bible also gives the criteria for how to do that testing, but that is biblical. Now, should you be doing this 27 times a day? No, should you be doing this? Yes. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 2. Great p- passage summarizing the gospel. This is how he introduces it to Christians. What I'm trying to show you is the same Bible that teaches have assurance, have assurance is also quite comfortable making statements like this. And, and point three will be how do, you, how do you fit them together? So if you're feeling the tension, good. That's, that's kind of the point. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-2. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. He wrote to the church at Corinth. The, 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 The necessity of persevering, of holding fast, plainly, repeatedly taught in the New Testament, And Paul says to a church, I'm going to remind you of the gospel, which is saving you if you hold fast to it. If you hold fast to it. We're told to examine ourselves. Point D, those who fall away reveal they were never truly saved. 1 John 2, 19. This is the plainest statement. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, They would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Now, let me pause. Until someone dies, the end of their story isn't written. And we know that Christians can have seasons of of apostasy. We know David murdered a man, stole his wife, and hid that for at least nine months. The baby that was conceived with Bathsheba was born when Nathan goes to confront him. So we know that can happen. And there are stories of people, I know testimonies of people who have fallen away from their confession of faith and the Lord has brought them back. So I would not want to rush to a judgment on someone while they're still living, while there's still time. But the scripture does tell us in general what to make of those who had a profession and have lapsed that profession and left. There's a category. It's to show they were never of us. They didn't lose their salvation. They never had it the most frightening example of this the most frightening example is demas 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 is commended in scripture as one of Paul's co-workers colossians 4:14 4, paul it was one of his closing admonitions he, sh- he gives he shares welcomes and greetings he says luke the beloved physician greets you as does demas demas was high enough in Paul's estimation that when he's writing to the Colossians, he wants to send along in scripture, Demas says hi. Greetings from Demas and Luke. And yet at the end of Paul's life in prison, in 2 Timothy 4, 9 to 10, do your best to come to me soon for Demas in love with this present world. That's agape, by the way, the verb agape. Demas in love with this present world has deserted me. And gone to Thessalonica. That's terrifying. You you can be one of Paul's co-workers. You can make it into scripture with a greeting. Say hi from Demas. And yet. And and who knows Demas' last state? The last state he shows up in Scripture. He's abandoned. Paul. He loves the world. And we know from 1 John, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Those who fell away. We're never truly saved. One, one other passage that teaches this, Hebrews 3, 14. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Now, let me read that to you again. Notice the verb tenses. We have come to share in Christ. That's past tense. So I'm going plug Jeremy in. Jeremy became a Christian. Jeremy d- came to share in Christ sometime back in 1999. If indeed, we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Jeremy became a Christian in 1999 if indeed Jeremy holds his original confidence firm to the end. And if I don't hold my original confidence firm to the end, it invalidates the original premise, which is not that I lost my salvation. Jeremy didn't come to share in Christ in 1999. This is the biblical teaching. Another statement that we have to persevere. And and, and so I get there's tension, and I'm saving the last point to try to resolve that. But we're not being biblically faithful if we simply downplay one of these two truths. We need to be able to hold on to them. I hope you've seen. They're clearly taught in the Bible. Last point. Turn to Ephesians 5. Out of all truths in the New Testament, this truth that we must persevere is one we're told not to be deceived about. It's almost as if the writers of the New Testament anticipated pushback on this point. There are some teachings we're told, hey, make sure no one deceives you, make sure no one deceives you. This is one of them, twice. Ephesians 5, 5 through 6. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. They're just a carnal Christian. They've just backslidden for a time. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Go to 1 Corinthians 6, or I'll read it to you. Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor the revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Those who fall away and fall back to their old carnal lifestyles, evidence they are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. And you can pray for them, you can pray that that changes, but while that remains, we're told, don't be deceived. People are going to come with plausible words, don't be deceived. This is this. This teaching is plain in the New Testament. It's plain in the New Testament. We must persevere in faith to the end if we're to be saved. So, um, we'll have time in the ABF to talk more about this. If you have more questions, but trying to lay down those first two points, um, let's deal. with Trying to get to a synthesis, and again, let me let me explain express the the, the dilemma as clearly as I can. The, the, the logic is this. It would seem either the condition, you have to make it to the end, you have to make it to the end, you have to make it to the end, is true, in which case, how can you have assurance? This is, this is the Roman logic. This is the logic of those who believe you can lose your salvation. You haven't made it to the end yet. Therefore, you can't know you're going to make it to the end. Therefore, you can't have assurance. I, I get the internal logic of that. On the other side, the Bible clearly teaches us where to have assurance So anything that might hinder that assurance, you must be misunderstanding. Generally, when I talk to people of this stripe, kind of like an ostrich, they put their hand in the sand with some of these difficult passages. That's why I want to look at both sets clearly. It cannot be the case that the teaching of perseverance negates assurance, and it cannot be the case that the teaching of assurance negates the necessity of perseverance. That that can't be the right. Those are false resolutions. That's not being faithful. We don't pick and choose which truths of the Bible to hold to. So what what do we do? What do we do? Here's your, here's point three. Here's my, here's my suggested synthesis to you. We have assurance in our salvation based upon our confidence in God's work to keep us believing. We have assurance in our salvation based upon our confidence in God's work to keep us believing. What, what doctrine is most commonly associated with the name of John Calvin? Election, predestination. What doctrine is most commonly associated with Martin Luther? The, the depravity of man, the fall. In fact, you may be familiar with the acrostic tulip. The T in the tulip, total depravity, Martin Luther's book, The Bondage of the Will. The P in tulip, perseverance of the saints. And, and one of the things I try to show um, when, we, when we take these Sundays, is why practically the teaching of the sovereignty of God and salvation, election, predestination, matter. Because I'm going to suggest to you that the way, the way to harmonize these two is to factor in the sovereignty of God. In other words, if faith, if human faith, is finally, ultimately, decisively a product of the choice of man, if the decisive vote is on man's part, if God stands back as a gentleman and says, I'm not going to interfere. Well, then the same freedom that allows you to believe one day could lead you to not believe another day. There's nothing stopping you. In which case, you'd either have to say you can lose your salvation or not believing doesn't invalidate your salvation. And there's some people who go even that far. There's a guy from uh, Dallas, St. Hodges, who insists that even apostates, people who flatly deny the Lord and die in that state because they made a profession of faith earlier will be saved. But if we recognize faith as God's work, if we recognize the sovereignty of God in giving faith, then the God who created faith can sustain faith and cause faith to persevere. That's one of the reasons why Luther and Calvin dug deep into those issues. Because, of course, Rome knows their Bible. Rome's pushing back. Rome's saying you can't have assurance. You haven't made it to the end. So let's let's look at this point by point, beginning with God gave us faith. If you're a Christian today, if you're a believer, God gave you faith. Go back to John 6 where we started. I think it's interesting that those passages that most strongly give assurance are coupled with those passages that most strongly speak of God's sovereignty and election and predestination. And I don't think it's a coincidence. So in John 6, what do we read in verse 44? No one can come to me Unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, we read Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I'm never going to send away. And I will raise him on the last day. Now we find out you can only come to him if the Father gives it to you. That the one who comes to Jesus has already received a gift from the Father. God has drawn him. John six sixty five. This is why I told you no one can come to me unless it is granted him by my father. So Jesus gives assurance to the one who comes to him. He says, I'm never going to turn you away. I will raise you on the last day. And it's in the same discussion where Jesus also makes it clear. You can't come to him without the father's grace to enable you. That's interesting. This is how the book of Acts speaks of salvation. And again, we've done a series on election and predestination. I won't, I won't belabor that too much here. But Acts eleven eighteen, when the Gentiles, when the when the church heard these things, they fell silent. They glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted or gifted repentance that leads to life. Acts thirteen forty eight, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Or Lydia's conversion. Listen now, Luke describes that. Acts sixteen fourteen. one who heard us is a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Why was it Lydia came to faith? Because God first opened her heart. Or as Jesus says in John 3, you must be born again. The new birth is the cause and not the effect of Faith. The new birth is the cause and not the effect of faith. Or Ephesians 2.8. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. So looking back in the past, if you're a Christian, you came to faith. Now you did believe. No one believed for you. But you only believed because God gifted you. He worked in your heart. He is, he is the reason your faith started God gave us faith. Point number two, God is at work in us currently to cause us to work out our salvation. You woke up today and you were still trusting Christ? I wonder why that was. You woke up today and you were walking in faith and in the Spirit. Who gets the credit for that? You, your determination, your perseverance, your will, not a chance of it. Philippians 2 12 to 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Get to work, Paul says, because God's at work in you, causing you to desire and to accomplish his work. Purposes. And God does this, point one, by His Spirit, His Word, and His body, primarily. You could make the list longer, but I had to cut things out because there's a lot here. So, how does God work in us to cause us to work in our salvation? He does it by His Spirit. His Spirit convicting us of sin, His Spirit bringing to, to mind His truth. He does it by His Spirit empowering and strengthening us. He does it by His Word. Psalm 119, 93 to 94, I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. I am yours, save me, for I have sought your precepts. And even his warnings that we've read, some of those passages perhaps that you've run comfortable when I was reading, God uses passages like that to spur you on. He uses his word to say, don't don't, don't rest. Press on, press on, press on. Strive to enter through the narrow gate. Persevere. God, in other words, doesn't work in us just magically. He uses means. He uses his spirit. He uses his word. He also uses his body. This is one of the reasons why the local church is so important because I need you to encourage me to press on and you need me to encourage you to press on. We need each other. turn Turn to Hebrews 3. We're doing okay on time. Turn to Hebrews 3. Hebrews chapter 3. Now, I read to you verse 14 earlier, which says, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. To try to illustrate the point that if we don't hold our confidence firm to the end, it doesn't mean we lost our salvation. It invalidates the premise that we became a Christian in the first place. But here the author of Hebrews is concerned about the possibility of someone who has an external profession, someone in the body, falling away. What's the remedy he offers? It's not the only remedy, but what is one of the remedies given in Scripture? What does he offer here? Take care, brothers, 312. And notice the shift from plural to singular. I'm going to bring it out with a southern you all, okay? The plural use. Take care, brothers, plural, lest there be in any of y'all. Is that, did I get that right, Phil? Is that more of a y'all? Okay, fair enough. Thank you, Phil. Thank you. Um, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you all an evil, unbelieving heart leading you, individual to fall away from the living God. So the danger is, in the midst of our corporate gathering, there's an individual, there's one of us who might fall away. And we're all to be on guard against that. We're all to take care, all of us, that not one of us falls away from the living God. So there's a group responsibility. Perseverance of the saints is a group project, in part. What do we do? But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened but by the deceitfulness of sin. How do we take care that not one of us shrinks back and falls away? All of us every day encourage one another day after day. That's, That's what we do. That's one of the means the Lord uses to keep us believing. He uses people like you and you and me. He uses means. This is also one of the reasons why we deal with sin in our body. He uses those means as well. Remember when we studied James James five nineteen to 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death, recover a multitude of sins. The great shepherd uses under shepherds and he uses his body to, to go after straying sheep. We know the great shepherd leaves the 99 and goes after the one, but he does it frequently through his own people, his own body. He does it through the means of his spirit through his word, through his body. Paul, even speaking about his own work, um, can't separate. Or de- you, get, you get the sense of his frustration. Moving to point two, yet we ourselves do work. I want to make clear. God causes us to work, but we do have to do the work. The evidence that God is working in you is that you're working. The evidence that God is at work in you is that you're walking by faith, that you're believing. That's how we ascertain, by Jove, I think God's working in me. Why would you think that? Because I've been faithful. I don't get the credit for that. He gets, this is how Paul speaks. First Corinthians fifteen ten. by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. But he can't let that stand, lest anyone think Paul's taking credit. Though, though not I, but the grace of God that's in me. So Paul, I busted my back. I worked hard. There's the grace of God at work right there as well. I worked hard. I worked harder than all of them. But it wasn't me, it was the grace of God. That's how you see the grace of God working in you. So, so, if you're a Christian today, God brought you to faith, and if you're being a believer today, God is at work in you, and you see the evidence of His work in you through your works of faithfulness, so that He gets the credit and the glory for that. Which then, so if you think of past, now present, now let's look forward. God will complete in us the salvation which He has begun. God will complete in us the salvation which, in which He begun. So I look back over my life as I'm trying to process assurance, and I remember the conviction of sin that came over me in the summer of 1999. I remember God driving me to His Word. I remember getting on my knees, I remember crying out to salvation. I remember the new heart that God gave me. I remember the change of desires. I see the, the breaking from sin, the adoption of new patterns. And I look back over 20 years and I see growth. And I have other people who know me who can testify to that. And so, I, yeah, I think God's been working. And I don't take the credit for that. I don't say, I did that. My assurance is not, I made it this far and I'm going to make it to the end. Nope. It's, it's, we find assurance in trusting God is doing that. God is doing it. So Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, Paul writes, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. I see the evidences of God at work in me through my growth in the faith, through my working at my salvation of fear and trembling, through my confession and turning from sin to my embracing and pursuing righteousness. I see that as evidence of God at work in me by his spirit, by his word, by his people. And I'm confident he's going to finish what he started. I've said this before. My, my confidence in my salvation is not that I have enough determination and grit to get to the end, but it's I've seen the shepherd come after me, leave the 99 with a stick and hit me upside the head enough times, and I'm confident he'll keep doing that till he brings me home to glory. He's not going to lose me. I see the evidence of both his work and his discipline in me, and so I'm confident he will keep that up God will complete in us the salvation which He has begun. Turn back to Romans eight. We read the passage about nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. But what's the foundation of that? It's not your and my free will and choice. What's what's I I told you the the passages that most strongly speak about assurance as I'm reading them are directly connected to teachings on election and predestination. What we started it in Romans eight thirty one, but let's go back to verse twenty eight. What sets up 31? We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And it's that unbreakable chain that the group... Moves along, losing nobody. The group of the, pre, the foreknown become one-to-one, one, the group of the predestined. The group of the predestined one-to-one one become the group of those he called. Those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. He loses none. Once you're on this chain, you, you stay on it. You don't get off. And that's the foundation for saying, based upon that, what shall we say to these things if God is for us? Who can be against us? What can separate us from the love of Christ? In other words, the groundwork of that confidence is not, I've, I know you're going to keep believing. I know you're the type of people who are just going to stick at it. I know you've got that type of grit. No. I know the type of God you have. I know his faithfulness. I know his faithfulness. Even Hebrews, that has some of the strongest warnings. And I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close reading three doxologies. We're gonna sing our, we are going to sing our closing song. My favorite songs. Listen to the way the New Testament in these three doxologies speaks of our assurance. And again, you have to believe. You have to persevere. You have to make it. We'll close with these words: 1 Thessalonians five twenty three to twenty four. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ he who calls you is faithful he will surely do it Hebrews thirteen twenty to 21 now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant equip you with everything good that you may do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever and ever Amen. And finally, Jude 1, 24-25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord God, I'm going to lift up our brother Glenn to you and pray that you would um, sustain him, strengthen him, We pray for ourselves, Lord, that you would cause us to walk in your ways, that you would be faithful to continue working in us, that we might work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Lord, I pray you would, as as you work in us, that you would also give us an assurance, a confidence, not in our own faithfulness, not in the strength of our faith, but in the strength of your grace and commitment to us, that you will not begin and not complete But that which you begin, you will complete. Lord God, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I think we'll pass on our closing song this morning. Um, While we tend to a brother in need, I will uh, dismiss you. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen.